Hallelujah. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord. We've got a lot to cover here today. But this morning, we're going to be dealing with a very, very interesting subject. We're going to be dealing with the seven feasts of Israel and how they relate to us today as a body of Christ. There are many preachers, teachers, and even whole congregations that doesn't see the need to reach out into, and preach out of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. They say that it's irrelevant to where we're living at today, and therefore, it is not convenient for the modern-day church. But that's the problem with our culture. They're more interested in relevance than they are righteousness. I also totally disagree with their assumption of it being irrelevant because, first of all, God would not have preserved it if it wasn't important and necessary for us to study. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 18, that all Scripture, say all Scripture, is given by God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for, for correction, and for, and for instruction in righteousness. And second of all, remember the Old Testament in its types and shadows according to the Apostle Paul himself in the book of Galatians chapter 3 verse 25, he, he says it is used as our schoolmaster bringing us to Jesus Christ. Let me also say before I get started, I'm only going to deal with the portion of the feast that the Lord has laid upon my heart due to time restraints. And I really want you to pray with me because I got information overload and I, 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 I'm a little bit scattered. I admit it this morning because there's so much there. I don't know what to bring out or how to bring it out in the length of time that I got. And, and I, 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 we would be there for months after months to try to uncover all of the different angles, the messages, the symbolics, the, the pictures and the prophetic meanings uh, that is hid within these feasts. It, it, it's, it's a year or two series. It really is. So I'm trying to just give you something in within the next 45 minutes. I just want to show you where we're at in the stream of events of the end time and also where we're at on God's timetable. Everybody's interested in that. But the scripture makes it plain that we are to be like the sons of Issachar who knew the times that they lived in. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians 12, 32, and the children of Issachar who were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And we're living in some end times and everybody's asking questions. Oh my goodness, what do we do? And somebody, and some of them say, well, I don't know if we're post-trib, we're pre-trib, if we're this, if we're that, do we go to the, everybody's got all of these questions, but the truth of the matter is we're not to be ignorant, uh, void of understanding of where we are, and we are to have discernment of the times, and we're not to be ignorant of the events that is to be taking place around us, because I want to tell you something, the word revelations in itself means to be revealed. God has revealed what is going to happen in the scripture, and we do not have to be fearful, and we do not have to sit around wondering, we can know the events that is at hand. Can I have an amen? Everything that we're seeing accelerate in our world, especially in the form of evil, has all been prophesied and revealed to us within scripture. And Paul warned us, Daniel warned us, and on and on and on of the different events that's taken place. Everything we need to know was found in the Holy Scripture and nothing should take us by surprise. And we should be equipping ourselves, we should be preparing ourselves for those things that lie ahead of us. And we do not want to be called the five foolish versions of Matthew chapter 25, but we want to be considered the five wise virgin, virgins, and that was where they received divine enlightenment. So we see and remember this, that the parable of the, uh, of the ten virgins uh, was tied to the end time, which was the midnight hour of Jesus' return. So we are to have enlightenment in the last day events that's to be taken place. We're to have oil in our lamps. Can I have an amen? And if there's one thing consistent in the study of the Bible, and that is that God works in signs, symbols, patterns, types, shadows, object lessons, but mainly of all, God operates in what we call divine order. Say divine order. God is a God of order. He's not the God or the author of confusion. He's not the God or the author of chaos. He is a, uh, he is a God of order. And if we are confused and we are not clearly understanding what God is saying to us, it's that simple. We do not have to be confused about the end time. Somebody say amen. Everybody says, well, no one really knows. Yes, we do. I am very confident in what the scripture says about the end time. Everybody says, well, what makes you so confident? Because the word of God is without error. And we can trust what the word of God literally says. 
Can I have an amen? One way of knowing if we understand or not is by seeing if it lines up or fits within the divine order or pattern of the Old Testament types and shadows uh, that's given to us. When he gives us those things, he's given us things for us to examine what we think uh, according to the divine pattern that is seen that he given us years and years ago. In all of my years in church, I have never heard a sermon preached on the seventh feast of Israel. I've never heard it, not that I can remember. I've heard some teaching where I went online. I've went and studied it out. I, I've tried to find people to teach on it. Before as a pastor, before as a preacher, going to camp meeting, I've never heard anybody preach on the se seven feast of Israel. And it's something that largely has been ignored by the church world. And yet, I, I don't know if it's because it is hard study. You have to spend hours. I have spent hours and hours and hours in the last few weeks just studying this. This sermon doesn't come to you because I went in my office and locked myself in for an hour. This is way up in the night. This is early morning. This is late in the afternoon. These, these, this is a lot of study. The seven feasts of Israel were seven appointed or selected times a year where God instructed Israel to do certain things. They were also celebrations that was established by God when the children of Israel was being delivered from Egypt and traveling through their wilderness journey on their way to what we call their promised land. Therefore, as we travel to our promised land. How many know you and I have a promised land? It's called heaven. Then we can learn from Israel's example as they were on their way to their promised land, which is Canaan, by these feasts. Now, let's look at slide one. We're going to have a few slides for you today. I'm not the best creator, so forgive me. But slide one, if they can keep up with me, the Hebrew word for feast is moed, and it means an appointed or a fixed time or season, an assembly or a set time. Now, that's very important. That's what the word feast means. So we see then that the feast were at set times of the year, but certain prophetic also events occurred with them at certain set times. Let's look for a minute. Let's look at slide two just for a second. We're going to be going through the sermon with slides here and there. Let's look at the seven feasts. They're mentioned. I didn't read them because of time restraints, but they're all laid out in the book of Leviticus. The first, fruit, uh, the first feast was that of Passover. If you look under the word Passover, you see the Hebrew word for that. You're welcome to pronounce that if you want to, okay? I'm not going to do that because uh, I don't know how. I've listened to them and my tongue just won't get there, amen? But nevertheless, the, the first feast was that of Passover and it happened in Leviticus 23 and 5 is where it's at. It happens the first month of the 14th day of the Jewish calendar. The second one is unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread. It's in Leviticus 23, 6. It's the first month of the 15th day. The third one is the Feast of First Fruits. It's the, uh, Leviticus 23 and 10, where you can look it up. It's the first Sabbath after Passover. And then there is the Feast of Pentecost. It's in Leviticus 23, 16. It happens 50 days after the first fruits. And then number five, there's the Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23, 24. It's the seventh month of the first day. And then there's the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 23, 27, which is the seventh month of the 10th uh, the seventh uh, uh, month of, of the tenth, uh, and then the then the tenth day, and then there's the feast of tabernacles, Leviticus twenty three thirty four, the seventh month, the fifteenth day. Now these feasts feast have several applications. They have what we call practical application, prophetic application, and pictorial application. We're going to just, just just talk about that just for a moment. The practical applications were that they were always centered around the barley, the wheat, and the fruit harvest. These seasons fell on the spring, early uh, early summer, and the fall seasons. That's when they fell. We'll get into it maybe a little bit. I don't know how far we'll get there. But they also were centered around the rain seasons of Israel. Now, in Israel, there was what was called the early rain and the latter rain, according to the book of Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. And this former and latter rains also had a prophetic meaning, which happens at set times, and you can see that being alluded to all through the scripture. The early rain would prepare the soil for planting the seed, and the latter rains would mature the crops for harvest in the natural. But this is symbolic also of the early church reign establishing and planting the church on the day of Pentecost. That was the 
the early rain. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was the early rain. And what did it do? It planted a church. And then the latter rain is going to be the last day outpouring of the Holy Ghost to gather in what we call the last end time harvest of the church dispensation age. Everybody's talking about, oh, I, I hope the rapture don't place because we want souls to be saved. Let me say this. There'll be a great a gathering right before the rapture of the church. There's going to be a great outpouring. But folks, there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people saved in the tribulation when there's 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? So we see that the real emphasis of the end time is on the harvest itself. The gathering in and the church that is end time minded will also be like minded. If we really have an end time mindset, if we really believe that Jesus is coming, we'll be harvest minded. Can I have an amen? The feast were centered on the rain cycles of Israel and also the seed planting and the harvest cycles. And this is why we call the practical application of the feast. And the second thing that we have to know is there's also a prophetic application to these feasts. Everybody says, well, how do you really know that? Well, they, there is prophecy that's tied to each and every one of these feasts revealing to us God's order of arrangement that is to come. They reveal God's order. Now listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2, 16, 17 to verify that. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the holy day or in the new moon or in the Sabbath days, which are shadows of things to come. In other words, Paul said that the feast of Israel is a picture or a shadow of things that were going to come and happen within the future and even his future while he was alive on planet earth. The prophetic nature of three of these feasts have already been fulfilled in the time of Paul's life. And one of them was being fulfilled while Paul was living on living out his life when he wrote that and it's still being fulfilled today, which we'll get into. The three springs say spring. It's very important. The, the three spring uh, feast of Israel pointed to the first coming of Jesus. This is where Jesus would come and be crucified, buried, raised from the dead to be our redeemer. This is where Jesus paid the price for our salvation and he made atonement for our sins by becoming our sacrifice upon that old rugged cross. The feast of Passover, as we all know, is symbolic of what? Christ's death. Jesus would die on the very day that the Passover lamb was offered for Egypt's deliverance and and for and and for uh, the people's deliverance from Egypt's what I'm trying to say. And Jesus would become what is our Passover lamb today. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, we all know this, so I'm going to run through these quite fast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that was celebrated was a type and a shadow of Christ's burial. And the Feast of First Fruits, as we all know and rejoice about, is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is three days after Passover. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. It was Paul that tied re Jesus' resurrection to the Feast to first fruits when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 New Testament he says but now is Christ risen from the dead and became the what? First fruits of them that slept. So the first fruits of the of the, the feast of first fruits is symbolic. It's a pictorial. It is a prophecy that Jesus would come and die and he would raise from the dead. Can I have an Amen. Everybody with me so far. I'm going fast, I know, but I, I, I can't help it. It's just my nature. So the first three spring feasts, which happens in the time of the early rain season, happened in the time when the Holy Spirit was poured out at the very beginning, pointed to the first coming of Jesus as a lamb. This is why the Paul said in Galatians 4 and 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Did you hear that word? But when the fullness of time would come. Jesus came at his appointed time. He did not come one day early. He did not come one day late, but he came in the order of God's timetable. Jesus came within his season. So we see that we have the last three prophecies 
which are shadows of things to come. The first three's already been fulfilled, but these last three are shadows of things to come pointing to Jesus' second coming, but he's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first three feasts, feasts picture Christ as a lamb that would come and suffer, but the last three feasts picture Christ coming as a lion to rule and to reign as king of kings and lord of lords because the lion being the king beast and Jesus is king of all. Can I have an amen? Are you getting in this with me? Are you hanging with me? Revelations 5 and 5 says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now what seals is he loosing? He's talking about the seven seals of tribulation. Jesus in his second coming is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not coming as a gentle lamb, but he's coming as a lion to roar. And it is him that appears in Revelations 5 and 5 that opens the book that sets the season or the start of what we call the tribulation period. Not only does these feasts have practical and prophetic applications, but they also have pictorial applications. They are designed for the purpose of painting us a picture and giving us a visual illustration of the things that is to come. So we see the alignment of these feasts serves as a picture of the order of and the arrangement of the last day events so they reveal what we call divine order. How many wants to know the divine order of God? So we have the first three spring feasts that the prophetic application of them have already been fulfilled. Let's look at them again. Slide three, please. These are the three feasts that have already been fulfilled. Look at it. Feast of Passover, Christ's death, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Christ's burial, the Feast of First Fruits, Christ's resurrection. How many knows them three feasts, the, the, the prophetic part of that has already been filled and the pictorial part has been fulfilled. There is an illustration of what them people could expect to come. It's already come, it's already happened. Can I have an amen? These have already been fulfilled. However, the last three fall feasts, these first three feasts happen in the spring, these last three fall feasts have not yet been fulfilled as yet. Look at what they are. Look at slide four. There's the Feast of Trumpets. That is representing Christ's return in the rapture. There's the, it should be number five there. That's the fifth feast. Number six is the Day of Atonement. Christ's judgment and tribulation begins. And number seven, the Feast of Tabernacles, Christ setting up his kingdom for a thousand-year millennial reign. Now, the prophetic application of these three fall feasts have not yet been fulfilled. So we have three that are fulfilled. We have three that are not fulfilled. That's six, but where is that seventh feast at? Well, if you look in the order and the arrangement of God, it was placed fourth, and it is the Feast of Pentecost, and this is where you and I are living at to this very moment. Look at slide five with me. This will explain everything. Notice we have the first three feasts that are mentioned at the top, Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and what did I say? Them all come in the springtime. Then you have the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is the only one that actually comes in what they call early summer. It comes 50 days after the first fruit. What does the word Pentecost mean? It means 50th. So we know that what has happened. When Easter comes along, we always celebrate what? Pentecost 50 days later. Can I have an amen? So are we on track here? So we see that it's the only one that went in the, in the Jewish calendar where it's the first, the only one that is considered to be in the early season of what they call summer. That's going to be important later on. And then there's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacle, which fall in what they call the fall. Notice where we're at on the timetable of God. We are smack dab in the middle. We are number four. We're awaiting for number five, six, and seven to be fulfilled. We're looking back by faith that one, two, and three was fulfilled. We're looking back and saying Christ did die on the cross. Christ was buried, and Christ was raised from the dead. And because we believe in that, we can be saved according to Romans 9 and 10. That if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So one, two, and three causes us to be saved. Can you give God praise for the first three feasts of Israel? Can I? Amen. We are celebrating and living what is called the Feast of Pentecost. It's early summer months when Pentecost started. 
Now, what does that mean? Pentecost has been around, and I'm going to be saying this a little bit later. If it started, then you know what we're waiting for? We're waiting for the latter rain. We're waiting for that last rain to appear. That's what we're looking for. Pentecost was the birth of the church, so we see we're living in what is called the church dispensation. The church is the Gentile bride, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's called many different things, but it's the church. Can I have it? It's you and I. We know that Peter, during the time of the outpouring of Pentecost, this is what he said in Acts 2, verse 15 through 18. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about, that in the last days, saith God, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your own men's going to dream dreams, your young men's going to see visions, and upon my servants and upon my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, saith the Lord. Now, at the outpouring of Pentecost, which was the beginning of the church, the planting of the church, it birthed the church, and it was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of it being the beginning of the last days. He said, in the last days, this is going to happen. And Paul, uh, Peter stood up and said, this is that which the prophet Joe spoke about. This is a fulfillment of what happened. Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joe's prophecy. So this means that Pentecost was the start or the beginning of the last days according to the authority of Scripture. So that means, folks, that the church has been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, which has been over 2,000 years. This is the divine indicator that we are at the end of the church age and not at the beginning. We are approaching the midnight hour of the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? Now, not only that, Pentecost started in an early season. It is almost, summer is almost over. Fall's about to set in. And the next thing that you and I are going to see, and I'm getting ahead, is we're going to hear the blowing of trumpets, and we're going to hear the feast of trumpets take off, and Christ is coming back after his church. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Woo right here's a rabbit trail, I'm telling you. We see that during the time of the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews studied the book of Ruth. It's in Scripture. The book of Ruth is the story of a Gentile bride by the name of Ruth, who married a Jewish man by the name of Boaz, who was his kinsman redeemer. That's what they had to study during the Feast of Pentecost. We know that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, and we are called the bride of Christ. Jesus' bride is mainly made up of what? Gentiles. We're a Gentile bride, just like Ruth was a Gentile bride, even so are you and I, and as Boaz was a Jewish man, even so, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, was what we call Jewish. So the pictorial picture on the Feast of Pentecost was that there would be Gentiles saved by their kinsman redeemer, redeemer, Jesus Christ. And this was unheard of in the Jewish religion. They thought that salvation was only to the Jew, that they could not believe that Gentiles would even be considered for salvation. So it was a pictorial picture for them. It was a prophecy to them that when you see Gentiles come to the faith, know, Jewish people, that the end is about here you're going to live in the last days when you see that happen. Every time a Jew looks at me as a Christian, and if they'll believe on the Scripture, I am an indicator that we're living in the last day because I'm a Gentile and I'm saved. Oh, hallelujah. Think about that. Another thing that the Jewish people done on the Feast of Pentecost was they set up all night studying and reading, and they did something called the decorating of the bride. I love this. This was a procedure that, that they went through to create another picture for us that Pentecost was actually a set time to make the bride ready. It is a picture of Matthew 25 of the parable of the ten virgins and also the parable of the lost coin, the dowry that was made in a wedding in Luke chapter 15. The pictorial picture of the Feast of Pentecost is a picture of the church making herself ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. There were actually three feasts where all of the male men at the age of 20 and above had to attend. All of them had it. Exodus 23, 17 says, three times in a year all the males shall appear before the Lord God. All males were to appear during Passover, according to Exodus 34, 18. 
They would appear in Exodus 34, 22 at the Feast of Pentecost. And they were also in Exodus 34, 22 to appear at the Feast of Tabernacles. And this, of course, was another type and shadow of making ourselves ready for the return of Christ. These three feasts that all men had to attend had a fantastic picture of a certain prophetic message. Let me talk about that. For example, they had to go up during the time of Passover. Passover is our redemption. It's where the blood of the Lamb is applied to our lives. The next feast was they had to attend was Pentecost, which is a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Ghost to give us spiritual empowerment to be witnesses for Christ. And the third feast that we had to attend was the Feast of Tabernacles, which is known as the Feast of Gatherings. So what is interesting in all this is that all men had to go up to Passover, to Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This means you have to be present at your redemption. No one can save you or stand in for you. You have to be present at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No one can be filled in your place, and you're going to have to be present at your own resurrection. You're going to have to make it yourself. No one's going to deliver you out of so-called purgatory. No one's going to pray you out of a pit somewhere. Somewhere. All three of these feasts have, is where you have to stand alone before God for what provision he has for you. Can I have an amen? Quit looking for man to baptize you in the Holy Ghost. Jesus is the baptizer of fire. Get alone with Jesus and he'll baptize you. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Quit looking for a church to save you. Quit looking for a man to save you. The only way to be saved is to humble before Jesus Christ. And the only way I'm going to make it in the rapture is to make sure I'm ready. I got to stand at all three of those by myself. The emphasis in the scripture is on ready. We're to be ready for the second coming of Christ. As a matter of fact, matter of fact, the number one message preached in the Pentecostal air was the intimate return of Christ. They used to preach it all the time. It's doctrinal. It's sound. Peter preached it. Paul preached it. And they even believed that Jesus would come in their lifetime. It's all in Scripture. The preaching of the return of Christ does four main things. Now, I'm going to run through them real fast. I'm not going to preach on every one of them. So write them down, study them out for yourself. Number one, it brings conviction upon the lost. You start preaching about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll convict sinners. It'll get their attention. Come on. Right now in Gainesville, Georgia, I think it's Gainesville, where Jensen Franklin's church is at, John Hagee went there and preached, and then J Jimmy Evans preached, and they both preached on the end time, and revival broke out. Perry Stone's there now, and revival has broke out, and hundreds and hundreds of people are being saved, and miracles are taking place in that church right now as a result of the preaching of the end time of Jesus Christ. So not only does it convict sinners, number two, it sanctifies the believer. It makes us ready. It was John that said, and many, many other scriptures I could give you, but First John 3 and 3 speaks of it so fluently. It says that everyone that has this hope, talking about the return of Christ, purifies himself even as he is pure. And I won't spend a lot of time there, but if you really believe Jesus is going to come tomorrow, you'll purify yourself. It's a sanctifying agent. The doctrine of the return of Christ sanctifies the heart of the believer. It makes the church understand that he could come any moment and we have to be ready. The third thing it does, it emboldens and empowers the mission of the church. Pentecost is about witness. It's about power. Well, what's the power? It makes the church understand the importance of its mission and its urgency when you preach the second coming of Christ. It causes us to be harvest-minded because we know we don't have much time to get our loved ones saved. It engages us. It says, man, we got a short time. we got to get with it. Can I have an amen? And the fourth thing it does, it gives the believer hope. That's why the Bible says in Titus 3 and 5, looking for the blessed hope. It's called a blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The word look in that verse is more than just a glance. It's an anticipation, a longing, an expectation. It's a watch. The church ought to be anticipating, longing, looking, waiting, wanting. That's what the Bible tells us. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 13, verse 37, and what I say unto you, I say unto all of you, you watch. And then he says in Hebrews 9 and 28, unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Who's he coming back for? Those that are looking for him. We're looking for him. 
the early church looked at the second of to return of Jesus as a glorious event. The second coming is the main purpose of the church. It is the invitation to be married to Jesus Christ at what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. The earthly mission of the church, as important as it is, cannot take precedence over the eternal mission of the church, and that is consummating with Jesus when he's ready and become his bride. That is, Folks, as much as we desire to be with Jesus, Jesus desires to be with us. Can I have an amen? The Hebrews say, it's, if the, uh, in Hebrews it says that, it, that, that the preaching of the cross or the preaching of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a hope and it's an anchor to our soul. Paul said, if I die, it's gain. If I live, I'm going to live for Christ. Whether I live, therefore, whether I die, I'm, I'm going to live for the Lord. But die's gained for me. And you know what else he said? If in this life only we have hope in Christ, did you notice that word in Christ? He said, even though I'm a believer and I'm in Christ, if the only hope I have is being in Christ in this present world and this is all there is, he said, I'm a man most miserable. He said, set your affections on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Oh, God, help me. I, let's, the Lord is about to come, folks. We gotta be ready. This is why that we see the, first, uh, the Feast of Pentecost as a picture of the second coming and Moses' ascent upon Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. It is to prepare us so that we can become ready. Moses went up on Mount Sinai during the Feast of Pentecost. And Exodus 19 is the pictorial picture that serves as a visual or a type and shadow of Christ's return. Look at slide six with me. Can they get it all on there? Oh, we're just going to do them one at a time. First of all, in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, God called Israel a kingdom of priests and a peculiar treasure. In Revelations 1 and 6, the church in heaven consisted that, uh, that we were at that point kings and priests already. In Exodus 19 and 7, the elders were assembled with Moses and they go up with him on the mount. In Revelations 4 and 4, the elders are present in heaven, assembled around the throne of God. In Exodus 19 and 9, we see God coming down in a thick cloud. In 1 Thessalonians 4 17, we see the Lord returning in the clouds. In Exodus 19 11, God descended and came down upon the mount. In 1 Thessalonians 4 16, we see the Lord descending and coming down from heaven. In Exodus 19 and 19, we see, a God, we see as God descended upon the mount that there was a loud voice and the blast of trumpets. In 1 Thessalonians 4 16, we see the Lord descending with the sound of a trumpet. In Exodus 19 and 20, the Lord came down and Moses went up. In 1 Thessalonians 4 17, the Lord comes down, the saints will be called caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, let's comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to know that we're about to be raptured out when the days, the feast of Pentecost comes to a final close. We're going to be caught up in the feast of trumpets, and we're going to go home. Can we have an amen? Pentecost is the season of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and I'm going to skip all of this. It's where he convicts us. It's where he draws us. It's, it, he guides us into all truth. He gives us divine enlightenment, so we're not to be ignorant of the time. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry during the day of Pentecost. And what is all that stuff doing? Leading, guiding us in all truth. And power. It is getting us ready for the return of Christ. That's what Pentecost is. But the real question is, when is the next feast going to come? When's the Feast of Trumpets? which is a type and a shadow of the rapture of the church to take place. It is commonly believed among Messianic Jews that the Messiah will come during what we call the Feast of Trumpets. If Jesus does not come during the, what is known as the Feast of Trumpets, you know what it does? It destroys the seven-feast order of arrangements. For example, the Feast of the feast of first fruits could not happen until Passover happened because it's impossible for Jesus to raise from the dead if he's not dead yet. There's an order. The feast of unleavened bread couldn't happen where they buried Jesus if he had not been to the cross yet. So there's an order that is an arrangement. And if he does not come during the feast of trumpets, then we're out of divine order. The feast of trumpets, which represents the rapture, comes in alignment by scripture before the day of atonement 
which is God's judgment upon the earth. Let me stop. I ain't going to preach on this because I don't have time. Folks, you will be raptured before God's judgment and before the tribulation begins. Period. Don't let no man deceive you. But the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture, comes before the Day of Atonement, which is God's judgment, tribulation, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the thousand-year millennial kingdom. We cannot get out of divine order. The Feast of Trumpets begins, and the rapture of the church happens in Revelations chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I heard, as it was a sound of a trumpet talking with me, which saith, Come up hither. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, the throne was, was set in heaven. Right now, we are living in the Feast of Pentecost, but we're headed toward what we call the Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23, verse 24, 25. And when the church age is completed and the grace dispensation comes to an end, a new feast, a new season will come and the fullness of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and we're gone. Now we know that the Bible says, Matthew 24, 36, but on that day and hour knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. This simply states that no man knows the day nor the hour when the Son of Man's actually going to come. Only God the Father knows that. Keep this verse in mind, though, for a minute. Then let's look at what Psalms 81 and 3 says. Blow the trumpet in the new moon. Say new moon. That's important. In the time appointed, say the time appointed, on our solemn feast days. Now, he's telling us to blow the trumpet when, during the beginning of what they call the new moon, which is, can I have my water, please? <clears throat> which is on the feast day. Now, let me get a little drink of water here. I'm getting a little scratch. Oh, that tastes good. Thank you. So, okay, now. This scripture describes the blowing of the trumpets on the new moon during one of the solemn feast. What feast is he talking about? We know which feast, which feast days that he's talking about because the feast of trumpets is the only feast that is centered around the coming of the new moon. Huh. And remember that Israel's calendar is a lunar calendar and not a solar calendar meaning they determine their dates and their feasts by the moon. A matter of fact, when you read the phrase in the Hebrew, appointed time, it means when the moon is full. Oh, God. The moon calendar is in four cycles. There's total darkness where there's no moon seen at all. And then there's a quarter moon, then there's a half moon, and then there's a full moon. And it takes, if I remember right, I, I hope I'm right on this, I, I think it's the number that's in my head, about 29 and a half days for that cycle to happen. And the Feast of Trumpets is the only feast when you look into the sky and there is no moon. Every other feast you can look up and there'll be a part of the moon shining. And before the Feast of Trumpets begin, there has to be a sliver of that moon scene. As a matter of fact, we were sitting out on the, our, I got a thing called Pastor's Porch where I gather with some men on Monday night and we pray. And we're out there and we're waiting for all the men to come and me and Greg Ziegler was sending there. And Greg looked up and said, man, that, look at that moon. It is weird. I looked and looked. And I, I said, where's it at? Over here. I kept looking and looking and looking. And for 30 minutes, I tried to find that moon and couldn't find it. And finally, I seen it, and I, re I understood why I couldn't see it. It was just a sliver. I mean, it was so small, just a barely edge of it could be seen. And boy, I've been studying this. I thought, whoa, I understand now what happened on the Feast of Trumpets, when they seen the sliver of that moon, it was the beginning of the time to blow the trumpet. Now, the Jewish people knew about the time that the new moon would begin. It would happen around the seventh month and the first day. However, there was a two-day window for the Rabbani court to confirm the time. What is that all about? No one would know the exact day or the exact hour until the two witnesses would come and confirm it. The two witnesses would go to Jerusalem and they would tell the priest because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be established. The two witnesses would speak it to the priest. The priest would declare it. 
Therefore, the three witnesses established it, and then it was time for them to blow the trumpets, but how did the rest of the people know throughout the land? Because all of the people did not have to come to that feast. Now, here is what's so beautiful about it. So, you have these witnesses coming to Jerusalem saying, we have seen the sliver. It's the time of the, trump, the Feast of Trumpets to begin. And the priest would hear it, and he then give a solemn warning, blow the trumpets. But everybody couldn't hear the trumpets because there was some way too far off. They would light a fire on top of different mountain ranges, and they got them mentioned. And, and on, they would light a fire, and then the one on the other uh, a mountain way off would see that fire. Then they would light their fire. Then that fire would light, and they would see something way over, and they just keep lighting fires until it reached all the way to Babylon. And then when they would see the fire come up on top of that mountain, they knew, the Jewish people, that the Feast of Trumpets had begun. Oh, now hang with me just a little bit. Now, what is so interesting is every other feast, you knew exactly when it was to start. But even though the Feast of Trumpets, it was going to be on the seventh month and the first day, there was a 48-hour window to set its beginning. And when Jesus said, you don't know the day or the hour, he was referring to this feast. And now listen to me. Not only is he referring to this feast, the Jewish people knew what he was talking about because the Jews did not know exactly the day or the hour until it was determined by the witnesses seeing the silver in, sliver in the moon. So this meant that it would come within that 48-hour period, but they did not know if it was coming on day one. They didn't know if it was going to come on day two. They didn't know if it was going to come at 3 o'clock. They didn't know if it was going to come at midnight. They didn't know if it was going to come at 6. They just didn't know. Jesus gave us another indicator, Matthew 24, when he gave us the parable of the fig tree, right? That's our indicator as the church. And he said, when you see Israel, the fig tree, become a nation, when you see his leaves yet become tender, and you see it bud, when it becomes a nation, you'll know that the summer is nigh, and this generation shall not pass until all things become fulfilled, right? So he's telling us that one of the indicators is, is that the rapture of the church could not happen until 1948, because Israel had not yet become a nation. As a matter of fact, Josh was telling me this the other day. It's a knowledge I didn't have. He said, John, I think it was John Haggy's dad in the early years preached, and he would preach, the rapture cannot take place yet because Israel is not a nation, and everybody laughed him to scorn because there was never, ever a hope of Israel becoming a nation. And he says, you can laugh at me all you want, but I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says Israel has to become a nation before the second come of the Lord, so Israel will become a nation. And they, they laughed at him and persecuted him and everything else. But nevertheless, in one day, God birthed Israel, and Israel became a nation in May of 1948. Can I have an amen? And now he says all things are ready to be fulfilled. So this parable reveals to those that seen Israel become a nation in 1948, some of them will still be alive when the second coming of Jesus Christ comes. Now, he did not tell us, uh, he, he told us, this is how that you would know that the summer is nigh. There, what word did he use? Huh? Summer. What feast is in summer, the only one? Pentecost. So he's saying this feast is about the summer feast, the early summer feast, Pentecost, has about run its course. It's coming to a close. It's becoming nigh. Get ready. The Feast of, the feast of Trumpets is about to happen. If the Jewish people are right by their teachings, this means that during the Feast of Trumpets, the Lord is going to return and people that lived during 1948 is going to see it. Folks, that don't leave us very many more Feast of Trumpets left. Another indicator, and I'm going to close. The fire also was an indicator. The template, the sign, the type, the shadow, the picture, the symbolisms, that the Feast of, uh, the feast of Trumpets is beginning is when we see the fire of the Holy Spirit bringing revival back to the land. And you will now look up because your redemption draweth nigh. He says, when you see the fires begin to burn in the church, when you begin to see the worldwide awakening, when you begin to see nations begin to really start coming to the Lord, he said, you better get ready. That's a sign, a visible sign of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain moving. He said, you have been in these 
early summer months at Pentecost, but you've lived out your summer season. And the next thing on the horizon is you'll see the beginning of the reign of the Holy Spirit. It's going to bring, it's going to come in the form of a fire and it's going to begin to set this place ablaze with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A harvest is going to come in. And when you begin to see that, get ready because the feast of trumpets is about to blow. Amen. That's where we're at. Right now on the timetable of God. We're at the threshold of the blowing of those trumpets. Now everybody says, do you really believe it'll happen on Israel's feast of trumpet? I don't know. But I know that it's gonna be in that season or it will be considered symbolically that season with God. Can I have an amen? And I'm here to tell you, we better get our house in order and we better get busy about our father's business. And if you got loved ones saved, you better get after them right now. Right now, don't wait, don't hesitate. You don't have to be fearful. The second coming of Jesus Christ should make us say hallelujah, glory, praise. It ought to give us hope. Can I have an amen? It's not a fear thing, it's a hope thing. It's the blessed hope. It's a glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're right here at the threshold of the blasting of the trumpet. I'm ready to hear it. Are you? Would you stand with me, please? I wish my, my uh, graphs would have been all on one page where you could have seen it all. Uh, it is on my papers, but the screen ain't big enough up there. Oh, Folks, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is coming. Prepare your hearts. Get ready. And please, by heaven's sakes, let us get mission-minded. We don't have much time. It's an urgency. It's a beck and call. Right now as I speak, I don't know if the firebrand of the Holy Spirit will reach all around the world or just in the segments of those that prepare for him. The fastest-growing church in the world is in Iran where multiple thousands and Thousands are being saved under the underground church. They say that Iran is wanting to push the end time button so bad because they're afraid of the spread of Christianity taking over their nation at such a rapid speed that they'll lose their power of government. Jesus is appearing before them. They're having dreams. They're having visions. People are being saved in India by the thousands. They're being saved in China by the thousands. And believe it or not, there's revival fires all over America right now in different places. Right now, there's, I know a four or five that's going on. Mario Murillo's been in a revival for two years. Putting up tents, thousands and thousands of people are flogging into them, and they have hundreds and hundreds of saved every time in every service where he puts a tent up. That's revival. Amen, amen. What does that mean? The fire's burning in California with Mario Murillo. The fire's burning in Gainesville, Georgia with Jensen Franklin. The fire's burning, and you can start naming the different locations in America where all some of these churches are having these revivals. So what's that mean? Uh-oh, get ready. The next thing we hear may be a sound of a trumpet because we see the fire burning. <laughs> Amen? With every eye closed and every head bowed, my, my, my main goal today is to set us straight, to get us mission-minded, to get us ready, to get our hearts prepared. Are you ready for the nearness and the intimate return of Jesus Christ because he's coming, folks. He's anxious to come and get his bride. He's splitting the... No one knows the day or the hour until he turns... The father turns to the son and says, son, go get your bride. And when he says that, there'll be a shout from heaven. What do you think Jesus is going to do? Woo! It's time to get my bride. And he's going to split that eastern sky and we're going to go up to meet him. He's so anxious, he ain't going to come all the way to earth to get us. He's going to make us come. The faster we get there, the better off he is. He loves us, and he wants to set up the marriage supper of the Lamb. Make ready, it says. 
Make ready. The parable is also found in the book of Matthew about making ready the marriage supper of the Lamb. Getting ready. Making sure we got our clothes, our wedding garments spotless and ready and white to meet the Lord. There is more scripture, more prophecy, more parables deal with the second coming of Christ than any other single event. Why? He wants you to be ready because he loves you. Are you ready this morning? Is there anybody here that's not saved today that would like to give their life to the Lord? Is there anybody here fearful? And you just, man, I'm, I'm just uneasy about all this stuff. God wants to wipe that fear out of you. And he wants to give you the promise of the blessed hope. You don't have to be fearful. I'm not fearful. But if I lay my head down tonight to go to sleep, I'm not afraid of the second coming. As a matter of fact, there's some of us praying, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. There's people all around the world praying that. They're under such harsh persecution. There's saints in China praying, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. There's people in the underground churches, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're not praying as much in America because right now we're kind of at ease. That's why the fire ain't burning as bright as here as it is in India and China and, 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 and Iran and different places like that. Is there anybody here? I know I didn't preach this in vain, which I know it's teaching you too to be ready. Now I'm going to ask the church, do you feel a need to just pray? Do you feel a need to just say, I need to get closer to the Lord? I want to be ready. This altar's open. I'm going to wait for you to move, and if you don't move, we'll close out. It's no big deal. You can go home, but if you just want to renew yourself, we'll let you pray. We'll be here with you. Is there any others? spirit right now I pray God that this, the moving of the Holy Spirit that's in the, this congregation right now settling on the hearts settling on the minds of people help us know and understand the intimate return of Jesus and help us not only understand it but let us be ready and when we're ready, give us hope. And in that hope, let us feel the urgency to tell others. Help us to be mission-minded. Let us get missional to occupy until the day that he comes. Let the second return of Christ ring in our ears to the point that we must, that we must evangelize, that we must witness, that we must tell our story because there's not much time left and we want them to also go with us and be a part of that great marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray, Lord, over this congregation today, engage us in the affairs of the kingdom. Let us be God kingdom-minded, doing your will, being obedient, being ready for your second coming, I pray. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to pray, you can. If not, we're going to dismiss you. If you'd, leave, if you'd leave quietly, though, and reverently, because we got many at the altar this morning, we're going to be praying with them and asking God to touch them. We love you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may his grace shine upon your path in Jesus' name. Amen.